If you ever want a sad story, you know, look at People Magazine, or if you're flipping through the channels, I'm sure if you stop on VH1, at some point you'll see some show that says something about, says, children stars, what happened? Where are they now? Right? You know, and we've heard these stories, and we've seen this, these cute little kids that show up on TV, you know, they're, I don't know, three, five, ten, whatever, they're on the show, they become very successful and popular, we love them, and you know what happens. They get in these adolescent years, and their life just kind of comes undone, and it's broadcasted on every magazine and TV shows, and we see that, and we see we're, we're crushed by that. I'm going to give you some examples. Some of you are too young to know these people, <laughs> okay? Some of you have never seen the show Different Strokes. You don't know what that is, right? But here's some names. Drew Barrymore. Uh, she said she got her first job at age one, had her first drink at age nine. Uh, that was a sad story. Gary Coleman, Macaulay Culkin, Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears. There's others. But we know these stories. We've seen them. They come. They're so popular. And they just cannot handle that success. They can't handle all that our, our uh, pop culture throws on them. Uh, three weeks ago, Justin Bieber wrote something. And I think uh, he's one of these. If any of you are, any of you ladies are in your 20s, you probably had a crush on Justin Bieber, uh, you know, when you're in junior high, high school. Uh, he came into the spotlight when he was age 13, and we watched his life un unravel. Now he's trying to build it up uh, again, and uh, compliments to him. But here's what he wrote. It's, it's a little bit of a long quote, but uh, what he says is, is pretty fascinating. He says, have you ever noticed the statistics of child stars and the outcome of their life? There's an insane pressure and responsibility put on a child whose brain's emotion, frontal lobes for decision-making aren't developed yet. When you add the pressure of stardom, it does something that is quite unexplainable. I went from a 13-year-old boy from a small town to being praised left and right by the world with millions saying how much they loved me and how great I was. Everyone did everything for me, so I never learned the skills of responsibility. So by the point I was 18 with no skills in the real world, with millions of dollars and access to whatever I wanted, is a very scary concept for anyone. By 20, I made every bad decision you could have thought of and went from one of the most loved and adored people in the world to most, one of the most ridiculed, judged, and hated persons in the world. It's a sad story. How many of you want your children to become stars? <laughs> How many of you want them to be successful? How many of you want them to be like David? Right? He's a good character in the Bible, but even when we read his story, I, I don't think any of us want to say, oh, we want that for our kids because it's so tough. And I don't know if you've ever compared uh, David in the Bible to Justin Bieber, but there, there's, there's so many similar concepts. Right? Justin went from a small town in Canada at age 13 and was thrust in the spotlight. But David went from a small town in Bethlehem at age 13 or so and was also put in the spotlight. But how they handled it, it's very, very different. Justin and so many other pop culture stars, these children stars didn't know, they didn't have the ability to handle that. But what we see with David, and, and though I said and admit that he wasn't perfect, 
He handled it differently. And I think it's worth looking for a little bit about how David responded. So after he killed Goliath, I mean, he was the talk of the nation. And we'll get into that with what happened. But people loved him of all ages. Girls would have put posters of him on the wall. The paparazzi would have been following him, taking pictures. Talk show hosts would have been talking about who he's with and what he's wearing. I mean, he was, he was a big deal. So how do you handle success? What do you do? Admittedly, as Christians, we struggle with this. We struggle with how we handle success. What we do Nick Mercer earlier this, uh, this summer taught on one of our Wednesday night services and talked about the awkward Christian bow that we, we do because Christians, we just don't know how to receive. But what we see here from David is someone who got success, but he handled it in the right way. Instead of looking to others and looking to man or looking even into himself and giving him props, he looked to the Lord and kept his eyes on the Lord and kept following him, and kept seeking him. We know that success can destroy. So let's look at this passage, and we're going to see two different paths. We're going to see the path of Saul that led to destruction. We're going to see the path of David that led to deliverance. Okay? So let's start here in chapter 18. And uh, we see as we start this, uh, this passage, we pick up exactly where... Uh, where we left off with David um, talking to Saul after he killed Goliath. And now we pick up, and in the next six verses, you're going to see just a whole lot of uh, successful things happening to David. And it won't all be uh, really obvious, but I'll, I'll read it and I'll point it out. But let us, um, let's look and see what happens, and let's notice that this success came from God. That God was the one who was blessing him and blessed him with some amazing things. But David was quick to understand that this came from God, not himself. Here's what happens. It says in verse 1, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, the women came out from all the towns of Israel, all the towns of Israel, to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs with timbrels and lyres. So we'll, we'll stop the story right there. But here's what we see. We see this blessing coming upon David. He becomes very successful, kind of in every area. The first thing, he has success with his friendships. He, be, he has a new best friend. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan is no one other than King Saul's son. He is the next in line for the kingdom. All right, so when Saul dies, Jonathan will take the throne. He's the prince. But he comes up to David and just their souls kind of unite. They become these best friends. So the first thing, 
we see success is in friendships. And we don't always think about it that way, do we? We don't always think about our friends, uh, part of our success story, but they really and truly are. Those of you who are, have the privilege of having one of those kinds of friends that just care for you throughout your life, that are always there for you, you can always call, that is a, the, one of the most successful things you can ever have. And David got that, got that instantly. Next thing we see is this kind of professional success. You know, he came as a shepherd. He came with a wheelbarrow full of cheese and bread, but he left in Saul's court. Saul says, I'm not even let you go home. Just leave that wheelbarrow there. Someone else will pick it up. You're coming with me. Right there, coming from just watching sheep to now being in the king's court is pretty amazing. It doesn't stop there. It stops, it keeps going where we see, we enter Jonathan again. Jonathan comes back into the story and he does something very interesting. Did you pick up what he did? He says he gave David his robe. He gave him his tunic, his belt, his sword, and his bow. All right, this little shepherd boy is now getting the clothes of a prince. This is the foreshadow of what is to happen. That Jonathan is really relinquishing his claim to the throne. While it's his, he has the right to it. He's giving it away. He's giving it to David, saying, hey, take my princely clothing. Take my military uniform. Take all of this. It's, it's for you. I'm going to submit to you that, David, someday you're going to become king, and don't worry about me. I'm not going to be any threat to you. I'm going to stand there, and I'm going to be your champion. I'm sure that was beyond his dreams that it would work out this way. But we see more. As we continue in verse 5, we see this military success. You know that he, he entered into Saul's army probably as an enlisted soldier, an E1 or something like that. But with every battle, he became more successful. And with every battle, he continued to climb in rank until he, Saul made him one of his highest officers. It's pretty amazing. And it's amazing that all the troops and the other officers supported that. Instead of feeling threatened by this young kid that keeps climbing rank, they were thrilled with what he's doing. But then we see this national fame, all this culminating with this news going all through Israel that when they came back, all the ladies of Israel were there singing and dancing before the men, before Saul, before David. He's a star. Right, all this while he's in his young teens. But you see what he did? He wasn't derailed by this. We don't, we don't know exactly his whole thought process. I, we don't get that part of the picture. But as we look into the, some of the Psalms, we see maybe how he responded. Instead of saying, yep, that's all for me. I did this. I'm so brave. I'm so powerful. Instead, he wrote something like this in Psalm Eight, he says, I will thank Yahweh with all my heart. I will declare all your wonderful works. I'll rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, Most High. See, all this attention is coming to him, but he keeps reflecting it back, saying, Lord, it's only because of God. It's only because of what he has allowed me to experience. Praise be his name. 
And so what do we do when success comes? What do we do when people applaud us or dance for you? <laughs> Reflect it back. And say, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. He blessed us with this. I'm gonna, I want to give him all praise and all glory. David's eyes were on the Lord. But as we continue this story, as we look in verse 7, we see that the plot thickens. Now we're going to see the lyrics of the songs that they were singing, and we're going to see what they do, that, what kind of influence it has. But here's what I would say. Be very, very careful who you listen to. Be very careful what comes into your hearts, into your minds. I don't care whether you're our youngest student or whether you're our oldest adult. For all of us, we have to be so careful because when we receive something that's not from the Lord, it can derail us fast. Here's what happens. The, the song in verse 7 says, As they celebrated, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul's killed thousands. David has killed tens of thousands. Now, that doesn't seem like much. It's a simple song. But let me just stop and say this. Um, this is not a Christian song, okay? This is not on Air One or The Fish, all right? This is like Kiss FM, okay? Or K-Rock, whatever your style is, right? This, this has, what, what's it missing? What's the focus of this? It's all about David and Saul. Just saying, oh, look how lucky we are. We have David and we have Saul to protect us. We're gonna be taken care of. We're gonna be fine. It's a little bit like in, First Corinthians, when the church is arguing, right, and saying, well, I follow Paul, and I'm Apollos, right, and I like Peter. Remember what he said? It's like, no, 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 no. It's not about that. I mean, this person waters, this person sows, but God is the one who makes it grow. The same thing here. We, we are totally, uh, there's nothing about God. It's just about man. This is humanistic songs. This is humanistic radio. But does David buy into it? I don't know. Maybe he was flattered. I mean, it was played not only all through Israel, but even we're even told the Philistines heard this. Two times in the, in the coming chapters, they quote this song from the Philistines saying, isn't this the guy that they sang that song about? So this is like an international pop sensation. It's going everywhere. But what did David do? I don't know, but we read in Psalm 24... He says, who's the king of glory? Who is the king of glory? Is it Saul? Is it me? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Do you see the difference there? One, totally focused on the accomplishments of men. Another, focused on the accomplishments of God. There's another song in Exodus 15. This is when the Israelites had come out of, of, of Egypt. And they've come up to the Red Sea and they're stopped by that. And we have Pharaoh's army is pursuing them. And God in his power, he, he parts the Red Sea. His people walk across. And as soon as their foot touches dry land, the waters come and wipe out Pharaoh's army. But in Exodus 15, they sing another song about this. And it says this, so that, compare and contrast, note the differences. Both of them kind of gory songs, both of them about death. 
But here's what it says. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Pharaoh's chariots and his army has been hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. It keeps going. Another 15, 20 verses. But you get the point, right? You see both success. But one totally focused on what man has done. The other focused on what God has done. And here's where those two roads start to diverge. This is why we got to be so careful. We hear things in our culture, and we sometimes adapt them as truth, but we've got to be discerning on what comes from God, what comes from man. Saul was not discerning. Saul fell straight into this. He took the bait. He fell into the trap. See, for him, when he heard this song, he put his eyes on David. He put his eyes on himself and David and, and just try, was so fixated on that. And we see now, we'll look at what happened to him, how that, where that took, and what, what good did that do for him? All right, it says, as he was, as we carry on the story, it says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. <laughs> you ever had an annoying song stuck in your head and you can't get it out? That's annoying. It can displease you, but this is like a hundred times worse. Everywhere he goes, he hears this song. Why do they always say that I kill thousands, but he kills tens of thousands? He became angry. He became jealous. And it says in verse 9, from that time on, he kept a very close eye on David. He put his focus on David. What is David doing? Who is he meeting with? Where is he going? He became angry. He became jealous. This would have been a fantastic time for Saul to come to the Lord and confess. And just say, oh, Lord, I blew it. I got caught up in this song. I heard it. It got the best of me. It made me angry and it made me jealous. But I want to confess. I'm so sorry, Lord. I want to put you first. I want to have my eyes on you. That would have been great, but he didn't do that. Instead, he let that anger and that jealousy build It's no surprise that he didn't repent because Saul built this culture in Israel of, that was totally absent from God. If you read the story, if you read all these seven chapters this week, you know what you're not going to find in there? You're not going to find any reference to the Ark of the Covenant. Not going to any reference to the tabernacle. That whole part is completely out of Saul's story. If, uh, never in his 40 years as being king is he, does he do anything with the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, it's not even in the tabernacle. Right now, at this point of the story, it's in some farm on the outskirts of, of Israel. Been captured by the Philistines years before. They kind of gave it back, and it just sat in a barn. 
Saul doesn't care less about it. But that's the culture he built. So of course it's no surprise that he didn't come before the Lord. Of course it's no surprise that he got caught up in this song. But the, the interesting thing is, is the culture of Israel that day, completely secular, completely godless, so similar to our culture today, right? It's so similar. Our culture is just caught up with man, and we see what each person's doing, what men and women are doing, and we compare, and we contrast, and we get angry, and we get jealous, and we get spiteful, and we try to get revenge. It's exactly what Saul had been doing. Because he had heard the culture's words, he bought into it, and he lived it out. And this would ultimately destroy him. He becomes a destroyer. I don't have all the time in the world to walk through this passage, but if you, if you look at uh, 1 Samuel 22, we see this whole chapter of destruction kind of coming to a head. That nine times he tried to kill David. Uh, I think about five times he's mentioned with Saul holding a spear. And I think that's very intentional for the author to say, uh, connect Saul with a spear. This is what he threw at David at least three times. This is what he threw at his own son who aligned with David. He used this, this spear as this tool of intimidation. And in chapter 22, he has all of his generals around. He has all of his servants around. And he's sitting under the tree and he has a spear kind of flipping it up in the air. Talking to them and intimidating them. Putting guilt on them. Trying to scare them. These are the tools of someone who is a destructive personality. But he does his job. He does intimidate him. And one of these guys, Doag the Edomite, I think one of the biggest villains in the Bible, right? He steps forward and he says, yeah, I know where David is. I know what he's been doing. I saw him with the priest over in Nob. That's all that Saul needed to make his point clear. He called the priest to him. He invited all the priests. There was 86 of them. And he brought them together. He said, why did you help David? And the priest was like, because he's one of your trusted generals. He's one of the people that you rely on. He knows everything about you. That's why I was just helping him. In a moment of rage, he had Doag kill all 86 priests. One of them got away and went to David. But you see where this leads, this destructive pattern, because he had his eyes on others. In contrast, we see David. In the very next chapter, 23, you see David emerging as not someone, a destructive personality, but we see him as a deliverer. Also in this passage, again, I, for the sake of time, I'll just summarize it, but I encourage you to look at it. David is hiding from Saul. Saul has been on the move trying to get him. Saul, we know in the next chapter, it says he has 3,000 uh, soldiers hunting for David. He's taking all of these resources to try to find David. And meanwhile, David's in the cave and he hears about this town on the outskirts of Israel, right near uh, by the Philistine border. And that town is being attacked. It's being attacked by the Philistines. And David hears about it and he's like, we should do something about it. But his officers, his, 
his military strategists say that would be the worst thing in the world. No military strategy has ever succeeded when you're pinned in on both sides by two different forces. He says, if we go there, we'll have the Philistines on one side. Saul will be there with 3,000 men on the other side. And we're going to be stuck in the middle, defenseless. Bad idea. But it says twice in here that David acquired of the Lord. He went to the Lord. And both times the Lord says, go there. Go and protect them. I will deliver them. And David does. The town is delivered. Saul wouldn't do it. That was his responsibility, but he didn't take care of it. But David did. Those two stories, side by side, are important. Because I think they show what happens. What happens when you live a life with your eyes on people? And it leads to destruction. It, it, it may not lead into you killing all kinds of priests and all that, but it, it, it probably will come to you destroying yourself. Living with anxiety and fear and living with, with anger and jealousy and all these things that we have when other people succeed. When other people have success and we don't know what to do with it and we get angry and all of that works out, it will destroy you. Versus on the other side, David, who sees success. And he says, when I have success, I'm going to give glory to the Lord, praise his name, and I'm going to let him use whatever he's gifted me to help other people to be a deliverer. Friends, what do we do with this? And we come to the end of the story. More next week. But for right now, we're at the end. What do we do with this? Well, on a human level, I think there's some principles we have to just be aware of. First thing is be very careful what influences you. These songs that were sung that seemed harmless were an influence. If this were back in 1980, I would tell all of you to get your records, and we're going to burn these things because they're, they're full of lies, right? Go get your Billy Idol and your Guns N' Roses and Depeche Mode. We're going to burn those things. There's no good. I'm going to tell you to go buy Petra records. If you don't know who that is, that's okay. Don't worry. But today, what do we do? Just say that. Be very careful what you listen to. Because there's a lot of lies out there that will try to trip you up. And many people will fall. So be very careful. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you get success or your college admittance, you know, you're going to get to the college of your dreams or you get the promotion, you get to give a speech, remember who got you there. It's not all on your own ability, but God brought you there. Bring that to the Lord. But on a spiritual level, David foreshadows Christ. That David is the one who delivered, but it was Christ who is the true deliverer. Jesus Christ is the one who's been sent on your behalf to rescue you, to save you from the domain of darkness. Not just the Philistines, not just the army. He has sent you to bring you to heaven. First Colossians says that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. Romans 4 says he was delivered up. 
He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. Meaning that Christ is the true deliverer. He has been delivered so that he can deliver you. So that he can bring you into your kingdom. Or bring you into his kingdom. His eternal kingdom. If you have never received Christ, if you've never thought about that, if you've never uh, called him your deliverer, your your Savior, do so today. Let the story of David be more than just a cool story, but let it point to Christ who kept his eyes on God the Father and died for you.